This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice Podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views, and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. Today, we're taking the time to look over the recent ESC Congress, which took place virtually between the 29th of August and 1st of September. This digital event was packed with exciting new data across the spectrum of cardiovascular care, including where cardiovascular disease intersects with diabetes. With this in mind, we reached out to two leading specialists in the field to hear their personal highlights from this three-day Congress, beginning with Professor Lars Ryden. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Ryden. So, our first question. Among the various abstracts presented at the session, we saw a subgroup analysis of the Rewind trial, exploring whether baseline metformin affected the cardioprotective effect of dulaglutide. For listeners who didn't attend this session, could you quickly summarize the key points of this report? Yeah, the reason to perform this ad hoc uh, analytical endeavor was that there has been a debate on the efficacy of GLP-1 receptor agonists. Do they act in the absence of metformin or do you have to have uh, a metformin on board as well? And the reason for that question is, of course, that um, uh, traditionally every person with diabetes gets metformin as a first type of glucose-lowering drug. And when the trials of GLP-1 receptor agonists, among them dulaglutide, as in rewind, when that is instituted or started, most people actually are on metformin. And uh, the new European guidelines advocate the use of cardioprotective uh, drugs before metformin, actually. So uh, since there was a debate, we thought that that uh, uh, Rewind would be an ideal study to, to look at that problem. And uh, we had about uh, one-fifth of the patients, 19% actually, were actually not taking metformin at the study start. And uh, the analysis was performed in a way that we sp uh, split the patients in two groups, those who started with metformin on board and those who started without metformin on board. And the end point, the beneficial effects of metformin on uh, major adverse coronary events and even microvascular events was absolutely not dependent on if you had metformin or not. We also made an analysis where we looked at the institution of metformin over time. Did the patient get metformin or were they taken off metformin over time? But that didn't really influence results. So our conclusion is that uh, the people on metformin are somewhat different than those uh, without metformin, but when you have controlled for that statistically, it doesn't really matter if you have metformin or not. Uh, this is not actually the only study that has been released with these results. There is also a very recent article uh, uh, on liraglutide, which also came to the conclusion that the absence or presence of metformin is not really important for the final outcome. Thank you so much. And considering these data, as well as available guidelines, should this influence first choice of therapy, where people present with both cardiovascular disease and diabetes at diagnosis? 
For example, should GLP-1 receptor agonist monotherapy be considered, or should people instead initiate with the combination of metformin plus a GLP-1 receptor agonist? It depends. If you have a patient without any uh, cardiovascular problems, no sign of uh, no high risk for cardiovascular events and uh, no previous cardiovascular history, then you can start with metformin because then diabetes is the uh, primary uh, problem. And then metformin, in particular, in a new, uh, newly uh, detected uh, people with diabetes, is an ideal treatment because it interferes with uh, the hepatic glucose turnover. And uh, this is actually what usually is disturbed in the early phase of diabetes. So metformin is still a very good glucose-lowering agent with very few side effects. On, in contrast, you have a patient at a very high risk for cardiovascular disease, or actually with a history of, for example, myocardial infarction or peripheral artery disease or something alike, then I would advocate that you should start with a cardioprotective drug, and then the GLP-1 receptor agonist is a first choice of treatment because it combines both glucose-lowering capacity with uh, protection from cardiovascular events. Uh, and this relates to people where you suspect that progressive atherosclerosis is the main issue. If you have a patient with a compromised left ventricular function, then an SGLT2 inhibitor is to be preferred. And this was actually not the least underlined by the recent data presented at the annual ESC Congress 2020. Many thanks. And finally, looking across the rest of the Congress, is there any other standout piece of data that would be useful for those managing patients with both diabetes and cardiovascular disease? Yeah, one of the major news, which was not completely unexpected, was that the EMPEROR, which was a, a trial with empagliflozin, an SGLT2 inhibitor, turned out very favorable uh, in patients, both with and without diabetes. And uh, it was an immediate effect. You could see it within a few days or a week, uh, diminishing the uh, need for hospitalizations for heart failure. And if you combine that with mortality, it was a very positive effect. It also had a very beneficial effect on further progression of ren uh, a compromised renal function. And that uh, actually confirms observations made with dapagliflozin, another uh, SDLT2 inhibitor, which was presented a year ago uh, at a similar meeting. So now we have very firm evidence that SDLT2 inhibition is good for people with heart failure, whether they have diabetes or not. Having said that, I have to underline that even if a patient doesn't have a history of diabetes and they have heart failure, in particular of ischemic origin, then very many of them have impaired glucose tolerance or previously undetected, not detected diabetes. And that was not investigated in any detail because they did only use HP1C and case history as an indication of diabetes. And that is insufficient if you truly want to know whether people have or have not diabetes. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Ryden. 
Our second expert for today is Dr. Naveed Sitar. Thank you, Dr. Sitar, for joining us today. Um, as a co-author of a poster on pooled analysis from Sustain6 and Pioneer6, could you summarize the key highlights of this analysis for our listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, so the data were combined from Sustain6 and Pioneer6 to look at or try and estimate the benefit of semaglutide calculated in, in, in life years free from cardiovascular disease. So in, in other words, rather than looking at um, traditional factors like how much risk is reduced by what we try to work out um, using something called the dial model is actually how many years um, CVD free life years would somebody gain if they were put on some other time and using the results on these two trials along with sort of um, statistical methods including using what's called as a dial model and the reason we did that was because um, someone uh, as a patient might understand that better that if we start these drugs they might be um, that this would lead to them to have for example, 2.4 years free from a recurrent cardiovascular event had they already had cardiovascular disease, and that might be more understandable for them. Excellent. While this analysis suggested that initiation of semaglutide was associated with an increase in cardiovascular disease-free life years, similar analysis of cardiovascular outcome trial data, such as the LEADER trial, suggested that cardiovascular benefit was only observed in people with established cardiovascular disease. Does this analysis contradict these data? Um, no, it doesn't. I, I think in one sense that we've got uh, in this particular study a better power because we've combined two trials rather than just look at one trial. So, and, and with bigger numbers always gives you a better ability to look at smaller differences. It doesn't contradict. What we found was that the number of uh, cardiovascular-free life years gained was much more substantial in people with established cardiovascular disease. Um, so that if you're, for example, 50 to 54 and you've already had cardiovascular disease, that by taking semaglutide, the, the model predicted that that individual might gain three further years free from cardiovascular disease than by not being on semaglutide. Um, whereas in people with without existing cardiovascular disease, the, the, the gains were far less. So by the time you were 60, I think it was something like um, three quarters of a year free from cardiovascular disease to be gained in people without existing cardiovascular disease. So um, it doesn't contradict. Again, the biggest benefits that you see in people who take these drugs are people who've got existing cardiovascular disease, but there looks like there is benefit also in people without, but it's, it's, it's substantially less benefit, if that makes sense. Wonderful. Thank you so much for such a detailed response. Finally, the poster concluded that this analysis helps contextualize the results of cardiovascular outcome trials and may help to inform clinical decision-making. In your opinion, how should clinical decision-making be influenced by this new information? I think we're moving in the future towards understanding on a patient-by-patient -patient basis what their existing risk is, and on the basis of that, plus trial evidence, is to try and work out how many years of uh, free from cardiovascular disease or other events that by taking the drug that patient will experience. And I think that type of information is more understandable. Looking forward in terms of cardiovascular risk and how we risk score, we are moving more towards looking at lifetime risks of cardiovascular disease, um, so that rather than just factoring in a 10-year risk threshold, which can be misleading in someone who's relatively young because age 
is often associated with low cardiovascular risk, yet their lifetime risk might be high. So by moving towards a kind of lifetime risk model, uh, and in the same way we can place somebody's lifetime risk and what they may gain from taking a particular drug in terms of life years gained free from developing a cardiovascular disease, I think that kind of conversation will help both the physician and patients better understand um, and uh, you know whether or not a particular drug might be recommended and whether or not a patient might wish to take that particular drug um, if the gains look reasonable to that individual. So I think the conversation is moving more towards um, metrics that are more understandable by the community, by people to get better for clinical decision making. Fantastic. Thank you. And finally, do you have any personal highlights from the ESC Congress that you'd like to comment on? I, I enjoyed looking at the uptake on the SGLT2 inhibitors because we've come a long way in the last five years in terms of um, the evidence base, both in, from primary prevention and people with diabetes uh, to people with diabetes and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease to people with heart failure and to people with chronic kidney disease. And the evidence base has um, substantially increased. And I think a lot of people have learned that actually only with the accumulation of several trials do you start to get a better approximation of what the truth might be. And I think with those class of drugs, it's clear now that they, their, their predominant effect is in prevention of, of hard renal outcomes, followed by prevention of heart failure, followed by a reduction of MACE. And how we formulate that into guidelines is going to be important. And also how we decide in particular patients who have cardiovascular disease, who is perhaps better recommended for an SGLT2 versus a GLP-1 is something that we need a bit more guidance for our our, our physicians. Uh, Equally going forward, um, to what extent these drugs should be used earlier in the risk paradigm is something that's, you know, both SGLT2 and GLP-1 is something that's being discussed. Cost is an issue at the moment, but their benefits are certainly clear to be seen from trials. Um, and, and the other questions going forward is, is the combination of these two drugs, do they have better benefits than using the drug alone? And, and you know, those are the questions that people are thinking about going forward. Uh, on the same, on the other side, I think there's a lot more um, evidence coming forward in, um, in, in other areas of diabetes, and particularly in relation to weight loss um, and its benefits early in the course of diabetes. So those are the kind of things that have really spiked and sparked my interest. Excellent. Thank you so much for all your time, Dr. Sitar. No, absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, thank you. And, um, yeah, it's always good to discuss science and, and with colleagues and particularly discuss data honestly, its implications and have frank and honest debates because no one really has a monopoly on the truth. And it's only by looking at the data um, by several minds together do we come up with proper and robust answers. This brings us to the end of today's time. Thanks for joining us for this Congress special. Was there anything that stood out to you as interesting or particularly exciting? If so, we'd love to hear from you on social media. Please tweet us at DKI Practice. Also, if you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to this podcast on your favorite app or recommend us to your colleagues. You can also access all of our free accredited CME content at knowledgeandpractice.eu, including interactive case studies and packages for small group learning. Thanks again, and we look forward to joining you again in the next episode where we will be summarizing highlights from the recent EASD meeting.